Hey, and welcome back to In Her Lens. My name is Nadine Rumer, and in this podcast, I chat with today's women in film. I'm so excited to be joined this week by Sarah Adina Smith. Sarah is an American writer, director, editor, and producer. She was raised in Colorado and studied philosophy at Columbia. After a series of shorts, including The Sirens, she directed her first micro-budget feature, The Midnight Swim. The film propelled her forward, and she wrote and directed a short for the anthology Holidays. Her second feature, Buster's Malhearts, starring Rami Malek, premiered at TIFF in 2016. In a transition to television, Sarah directed episodes on HBO's Room 104, Wrecked on TBS, and Legion on FX. Most recently, Sarah directed the pilot for the Hulu series Looking for Alaska. She directed the first two episodes of Amazon's action thriller series Hannah, as well as serving as a co-executive producer. She's currently in post-production for her latest film, Birds of Paradise, which was delayed due to COVID-19. In this episode, Sarah and I talk about her journey through the industry, navigating money, rejection, and inspiration. We talk about the making of her films, about writing scriptments and ambitious plans on a small budget. She talks about her transition to TV, directing episodes and fighting for pilots. We also touch on her production company, Everything Everything, her latest film, and shooting in a pandemic. Let's just get to it. Here is Sarah on In Her Lens. Hi. Hi, how are you? Amazing. Hi, I'm good. How are you? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you about your journey and about your work because I'm a huge fan personally. Thank you. Well, we start every episode talking about the most recent film that you've seen and a couple of your thoughts on it. Oh, I just saw an amazing movie called Another Round um, by, oh, I'm going to totally butcher pronouncing his name. It's like Thomas. <laughs> I'm just going to mumble the last name. He's, I should know it because he's like one of my favorite filmmakers. He also did um, The Hunt. I want to say he did the celebration. I feel like we should do a quick Google. Um, I might be speaking out of turn, but, um, but brilliant filmmaker and Mads Mikkelsen is like the most, one of the most talented actors alive, truly. Um, And it's like a very, it's almost. Yeah, it is. He also did the celebration. Vintenberg. He did. Vintenberg. Okay. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, absolutely have you seen the celebration yes i have seen the celebration but i haven't seen the hunt oh you have to watch the hunt too i mean he it's really brilliant he has this way of like really um kind of shooting so subjectively so you're so grounded in the interior life of the Mm -hmm. protagonist in his movies and and another round i don't want to spoil anything but it's it's like sort of about loneliness and depression and and the culture of drinking in order to sort of be able to be open and express yourself Mm. um but it's kind of this dance of a movie and the way the camera moves is so fluid i don't know can you hear my neighbors screaming by the way i'm sitting outside on the porch okay (laughs) little texture to your podcast exactly (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah highly highly recommend it it was great 
That's a great, that's a great recommendation. Okay. So before we dive into talking about your work, tell us a bit about yourself, where you grew up, what your parents do. Um, I grew up in Fort Collins, Colorado, which is like a medium sized town north of Denver, Colorado. Um, very like, honestly, um, it's a great place to grow up, but very like Pleasantville wholesome me in sort of a maybe boring way growing up a very like suburban American childhood and um it's actually Fort Collins has gotten a lot cooler since I lived there got a lot Mm. more like hip and interesting but um but growing up there um uh I always kind of was longing to to find more diversity and culture and color and um and my my parents are both in medicine um so there's there's four kids in our family none of us ended up in medicine which is probably kind of weird we each do something different but I'm definitely like the the oddball of the family and like the the least educated of my family <laughs> everyone else has fancy advanced degrees and I went off and did did art stuff was something was creativity something that was encouraged at home long pause yes yeah yeah no yes not no but I think I do think it was a little like I think my parents didn't quite know totally what mm. to make of me or, or really you know like I think they kept waiting for me to go to law school right. a little bit <laughs> slash highly suggesting I do so um yeah and I also in their defense I was such a fucking weirdo like I made some really <laughs> weird art projects I look back on it now and I'm like if I had a kid and they were like that what would I do I remember like god it's embarrassing I wrote like some really embarrassing explicit poetry that like I don't even think I realized was so explicit and and made these weird sculptures out of like tic-tac boxes and then I would like have an art show at the local coffee shop and then like invite our rabbi by the way which (laughs) is just like it's like really super super weird so in there like you know all things considered they were highly supportive they like you know showed up to my weird art shows and and let me do that do you remember any any movies distinctly from that time that kind of sparked your interest in in filmmaking well I grew up really not exposed to cinema per Mm. se so we had like blockbuster video and a big chain multiplex yeah so um I always loved movies, but they, you know, the, the, the movies that sculpted my childhood were like coming to America, adventures and babysitting, uh, Ferris Bueller's day off. Like these great, oh my God, great films, Goonies, Mm -hmm. Indiana Jones and last crusade. Like these are like absolutely exciting, great movies, Ghostbusters, I should say too. Um, but, um, but like, I didn't think of cinema as high art Mm. really. I just had no exposure to that. So it wasn't really until I moved to New York. Um, and I started, this is like the most cliche backstory, but it is true. I started working at an independent video store yes. and <laughs> got, started getting a little film education that way. And I remember going to the film forum for the first time mm-hmm. and just like having my mind blown open, like seeing a film I just had never seen before, you know, something so different. I very much relate to that. Um, I also didn't, I grew up with blockbuster movies kind of and going to the, to like the cinema. But when I moved to New York and I started going to like the Angelica and film forum and like film Lincoln center. And I just went to go see something random and my mind was, I had no idea. Yeah. Every time you, that's what I loved about it. You didn't have to even know anything about you do just show up there any night of the week 
and yeah, see yeah. something and be pretty much guaranteed to, you know, be taken for an interesting ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Looking back now, do you think you can pinpoint where you started visually expressing yourself, like using film and like, where did that kind of start? Yeah. I, I studied philosophy at Columbia, but I was always painting. And mm-hmm. I thought, I think, I think I thought, and I was also doing some acting. Um, I should put acting in like big old air quotes because I don't know (laughs) loosely speaking doing some acting but um I think I was I I think I was on more of a like fine art track I think Mm. I like after I graduated I was painting and it had like a painting commission and that's what I was doing but I had already started getting kind of interested in video art and started making some weird video art pieces and I think that was my segue probably into um making films but also like I was very serious about philosophy and it was kind of at a crossroads of like do I continue go get my PhD my my professors were really encouraging me to do that and I was you know sort of had one foot in each path and for some reason I thought film would be the synthesis of my two passions of like philosophy Mm. and creating something visual like a visual artifact in the world and um and also like I'm inherently a lazy person and I thought in some ways that like making films would be like a way more fun way to do philosophy without any of the Mm. like the boring analytical work so I was like oh perfect I think some of your films definitely nail that so I can definitely see (laughs) that be an armchair philosopher and think really deeply but then but actually it was a real growing pain it took a lot of um there's a lot of growing pains and because the first films I wrote were so philosophically dense that they were completely unaccessible and boring quite Mm. frankly you know they're weird philosophical treatises that had I I had to learn about drama and had to learn about character um, and that took many many years like the better part of like seven or eight years of writing awful scripts that were just these like probably embarrassing solipsistic manifestos you know so you've made this really cool jump from independent filmmaking to television streaming services like hbo and amazon prime you really did start an independent film and Mm -hmm. um navigated the industry kind of from there managing things like funding and festivals and you know rejection that comes with that landscape always Mm -hmm. my career has been a constant stream of rejection Mm -hmm. and i don't I don't know, you always, like, especially when you're starting out your career, you, you think if you just get over the next mountain, it'll get easier. Right. And to like some extent that's true, but honestly, the mountains just get steeper Mm. too. So, and what happens is your muscles just become more accustomed to the work and you just get, you, you, your stamina increases. And so maybe in, in that way it gets easier, but the, the, you know, the, the universe, like, (laughs) <laughs> the nature of entropy and the universe is it does not want you to create films. Films are a very ordered thing that take a lot of energy to to give birth to that order. And so, like, there's always going to be, a, you know, for the most part, a, a great amount of resistance. And and that's to the, I would have to say, sometimes it's not good, but sometimes it's to the benefit of the project, too. Mm-hmm. And sometimes into the benefit as you as an artist. I think if everything comes too easy maybe not in every case there's some people who are just like you know right out of the gate ready to go geniuses but I do think some amount of resistance 
um, is good for the creative process too. I think one of the big things during that time too, is like, you're trying to fund yourself, like your rent and your life whilst you're trying to fund your film. Where did you kind of find the balance in that when you were working on your shorts and your first features? Yeah, I was just in debt all the time and like taking, you know, I did all the things that you're, they, you know, people, it seems so romantic. Oh, you just take out the credit cards and make films, but it's also so stressful. It's like, oh, but like then those credit card companies, they call you and they call you every hour and then they track down your like loved ones and they call them Mm. too. And it's like, (laughs) it's really not, it's hard to recommend that path. Um, But um, I mean, I was fortunate that I fell in love with and married my cinematographer and we found each other when I was still very young and we were very happy to both be to put whatever money we could um scrounge up into our little film habit so Mm -hmm. it was it was you know I feel like finding your allies early on is like the key like who wants to hustle with you Um, and that for me you know really gave me the strength through the hard times Mm -hmm. um but so my 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 husband slash cinematographer Shaheen and I we to pay our rent, we're running a design company because I, I had a painting background. He had an architecture background and you know, that somehow manifested in like graphic design it was like <laughs> the, the middle ground of that. Um, and, um, we just basically would just say, yes. Anytime someone asked if we could do something, we would just say yes, even if we didn't know how, and then we mm. would figure it out. And it was like, whatever we could get people to pay us for creatively, we, we did. But finding the balance was really hard. And honestly, I was really, after, you know, seven years of writing, trying to find my voice as a filmmaker. And then also it was just really stressful chasing that dragon financially. And and like, you know, it's actually 14 hours a day running a graphic design company, like doesn't leave much energy. Right. I was about to say, like, that's always kind of the catch, right? It's like, okay, you make a plan B, but then the plan B starts taking up a lot of your time. And then I was like, exactly. And all of a sudden I was depressed. I'm like finding myself like edging on 30, hadn't made a feature film yet. Felt like, okay, well, I'm running this graphic design firm, which is great, but like not what I dreamed, not what I thought I'd be doing. And, and as we got more success with that, I'd, felt more like a manager and less like a creator um, as the projects got bigger. So I, um, I was so fortunate that this thing sort of happened to me where um, I got a fellowship to this place called the screenwriters colony. Mm -hmm. And it was the first thing I'd applied for this shit, you know, different things. So many programs, so many times, Sundance labs, all the labs never got any of them, you know, maybe, maybe got like a runner up once or twice. But this is like the first thing I won, you know? And I, um, the fellowship was a month long, all expenses paid writer's retreat. Wow. And it completely changed the course of my life because it was the first time in my life. And I had to literally put the brakes on the rest of my life and luckily had a supportive partner who said it was okay. And I was just like, I'm going to peace out for a month. I'm going to step away from running this company and leave you with far more workload than you should have. And I'm going to turn off my phone for a month and go, right. And um, I'm so lucky, you know, that I had someone who was willing to let me do that. And it was the first time that I spent all of my waking energetic hours getting to focus on the writing. Mm -hmm. And, and I feel like that's where I really, I mean, I I shouldn't say that's where I found my voice because I had already done some things before that, but that's where I think I really like locked into my flow. Mm, mm-hmm. 
as a writer and filmmaker. Yeah. Interesting. And that was after you made some of your shorts and before your first feature? No, I, I had made the Midnight Swim at that point. Oh, okay, cool. So how did Midnight Swim kind of um, come to be? Because it's such a, it's a, I mean, it's beautifully shot. Cause I, I mean, I know that Shaheen probably also worked on that. Yeah. And yeah. there's a lot of POV work but it's a micro budget film. So how did you manage to Tiny. jump short to, to the feature? And what was that process? Um, it, it was born of failure because um, I had this other, I had a couple other feature scripts that I had been trying to get financed for many years and had come relatively close. And, oh my God, hustled my ass off trying to get those other movies made. Did weird sh- stuff that like you're not supposed to do. I don't <laughs> recommend, not safe. Like I remember just, you're just like chasing money, you know? So I like, there was this one random guy, don't even remember how I met him, but he was like, from Minnesota. And he was like, yeah, come scout with me for three days alone in a car. And like, I have this tax incentive, but I was like, sure. Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> I remember day one, he was nice enough. He was like, you know, luckily I bet that could, by the way, could have been a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. I could have mm-hmm. just been like jumping in a car with a serial killer for three days. I don't know. But I remember this is kind of makes me laugh every time I think about it. Cause I was like, just so desperate for financing. So I, I go to Minnesota, get into the rental car with him. And we're, we're supposed to spend like three days scouting together and talking about how he's going to find money for my movie and everything. And we're 20 minutes into the car ride. And he was like, um, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And I was like, oh, oh. you know, I was raised Jewish. I'm agnostic now, but I realized he's like 20 minutes in oh, no. he, the entire time. Like it was like a conversion trip. Like he wanted, like, I think he would have financed the movie had I just like accepted. And honestly, I consider, I considered it. I wanted to make the movie so bad. Like, well, maybe. Like, maybe. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, wow. this example of um, the kind of like right. desperate hustling I had been doing to get a feature made and then and then we were close and we um we had a solid actor attachment and we had our looked like we had our money and we were I think kind of like um we were really close I think we had already hired a casting director we were basically in prep and the money was but we were just waiting for the money to arrive in the bank from our financier and like two days go by when it was already supposed to be in the bank and it hadn't been we're like what's going on mm-hmm. um and then um yeah and then found out that they got cold feet and then we were just like you know midway through prep with no money Mm. and I just hit a total rock bottom it was kind of like the first time in my life where I was like can't get out of bed depression because it's just like what am I doing with my life you know this is just like killing myself it's not working and so um I just had a do or die moment where I was like okay um I could either take the prep we've done and the money that's been spent and, and regroup. And, uh, and my idea at first was like, maybe I go make a short, you know, just go make another thing or, or I just give up and go to law school. Finally, you know, my parents <laughs> win. <laughs> um, but, and then I went to dinner with my, um, my Shaheen and I went to dinner with Jonica Donnelly, who's my longtime um, producer, collaborator, um, creative partner, and her husband, Daniel Stam, who's a director as well. And at that dinner, he looked me in the, in the eye and he was like, don't you dare make another short. Don't mm. you dare. He was like, you go, go make an improv feature. And the, in the time you would take to go make that short, go make a feature instead. And I, I never considered doing like, honestly, I was such a snob. I was like, 
I'm sorry, my art is like too important for a micro budget improv feature. Oh no. Um, so, but he kind of talked some sense into me and motivated me, and I really looked up to him. So I was actually listening. Of course, Shaheen had been telling me this for years, and I never <laughs> listened, you know. <laughs> Poor guy. He had been begging me to just go make something like that. And I was so then I pivoted and took this, you know, what would have been a short and had the seed of an idea. I remember um it was like a couple days later, we were at I don't remember, we're at some party and I think Jonica and I were like drinking absinthe at a party and I pitched her the idea and she was like, I love it, let's do it. Um, I think she came over the next day and I outlined it for her and she, you know, helped me fill in some gaps. And then we were like off to the races. It was fast and furious because we had this location and some cat, we had like a window of where this could all work. So we just like, right. let's stay on schedule of this other film we were going to make. The whole thing was born and shot within like a month and a half. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So interesting. Cause it is, I mean, it's, I, I love the idea of doing like an improv feature on a micro budget. Like, and I mean, your film is so beautiful and it really propelled you forward into your next work and then got, getting on to like the, did. Uh, the festival circuit and all of that. And then it brought you to holidays, I believe. Um, That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How was that for you to go from, from that to something like holidays? Well, holidays was like, I'll never forget. I actually can picture where I was when I got the call on like fifth street downtown outside the Rite Aid. But I got, I remember getting the phone call and it was the first time it was from Adam Egypt Mortimer, who was helping produce holidays. It was the first time in my life, anyone had ever offered me a gig uh, in filmmaking mm -hmm. and, and a, a small budget. It was 25 K to go make a short, but it was like, you know, we made the midnight swim, our production budget was 50,000. So I was like, Oh my gosh, 25 K for a short, like ready. <laughs> huge. Yeah, exactly. So, um, like without question. And, and also it was like creative freedom. You can just write and direct whatever. So it was an immediate yes. And I, with that one, I was so nervous. I knew, I kind of knew I was the token lady because all the other, um, directors were dudes. And I, so, and I was so nervous that, and I was like, skeptical in some ways of like, why did they pick me? So I was so nervous they were going to take the money back or change their minds. So I, as soon as I said, yes, I just like turned it out, rushed it, shot it before they could change their minds. I was like the first person to finish my short, I think. Just like, don't let them change their minds. Then came Buster's Mal Hart. Is that true? Yeah. Is that kind of, how did that, yeah. where did that idea come from? Because I, I, there are some kind of ties in um, with Midnight Swim and Buster's Malhart, kind of Definitely. woman versus lake, man versus mountain, man versus cosmos. And yeah. you know, the man is played by uh, Rami Malek, um, who around that time was then kind of blowing up with uh, with Mr. Robot. Um, yeah. But what what did the script look like with Buster's Malhart? How did that differ from Midnight Swim? So both Midnight Swim and Buster's Malhart were scriptments. So they're not fully full scripts. Midnight Swim, I think, was a shorter script, and it was like 25 pages, something like that, like robust outline. Buster was maybe more like 65 pages, robust outline. Um, and creatively, I think you're right. The probably opening touchstone for me was wanting, I had just done something with women in water and wanting to do something with a man in a mountain um, and had the inklings of this idea when I got the Screenwriters Colony Fellowship. And it was in Nantucket at this fellowship that I wrote the script for Mother's Day, the holiday short, and Buster's Mel Hart in a month. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
and and Buster was conceived like so. It sounds like it's gonna be sound like a really weird, creepy word, but I'm just gonna say it. It was conceived gently, if this makes sense. I when I got this fellowship, I had been pushing and working so hard in my life up until then, like at a you know ninety miles an hour all the time, and I was really burnt out. And I made a deal with myself that if when I went to had this one month where I could write that I was not gonna rush myself, and that mm. I was gonna take things slow. And so the way I wrote Buster was really with a lot of sort of patience and compassion for myself. Mm -hmm. And so I would, um, I would wake up in the morning, have a cup of coffee and write down questions that I had, whatever questions about the story or character. Then I would go for like an hour and a half or two hour walk where I would just like walk with the character in a low pressure way, not looking for answers, literally just like a meditative walk. And I would come back and I would write note cards of little, sometimes it was like little visions. Sometimes I'd make a little drawing. Um, sometimes it would be a scene, a fragment, a word. And I would just like totally let myself kind of free associate the things that came out of that walk. Um, and so that was really like the first, I let myself do that for the first couple of weeks. And then, and then I had all these note cards, um, that then I could, it was more like being an editor, you know, which was great. It's so freeing. So I really like wrote the movie, the movie, oh my God, the movie through, um, these, these pictures and these note cards. And then before I knew it, I had an outline and it really took wow. shape and just became super coherent. That's such a beautiful way to look at, at that film. When working with the scriptment, how do you kind of ensure that you get the coverage that you need and how do you work with the actors either on set or already pre in pre- how does that kind of process work? Sure. Well, so both Buster and the Midnight Swim, probably more so with Buster, it's it's pretty deliberate. And honestly, just because I had this weirdo scriptment format that was like outline and pictures and weird, it, it still was very specific. So I don't, and actually, you know, I work now with a lot of the scripted material and I write full scripts too. And I don't, I actually don't think the process is all that different. Mm -hmm. the, the thing that I had to get over and the reason that process was so helpful for me is I needed to stop being precious, particularly ah. about my writing. Right, right. And so letting myself have a little bit more freedom with these scriptments really helped me do that and really stay in the moment as a director, um, which is something I'm really longing to get back to. I actually have another project now where I've just decided to go back to a scriptment format to get back to that way of working where, you know, there's a danger sometimes in things being too worked out. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's really important to um, be in discovery mode and let yourself be um, surprised and in the process of um, finding these things on the day and like being super open to what um, the world is giving you on that day. So, um, and having a scriptment really forces you to do that. You have no choice. There's no safety net. There's no backup plan. You have to fill in those gaps yourself. Right. Um, and, and not only that, but what's amazing is like all the cast and crew have, have that same fire under them because of it. So everybody has to bring their A game. Yeah, that's exciting. I also like really excited about like the collaborative nature of filmmaking that kind of like really mm -hmm. puts that in the front and center in the spotlight. That's right. Because it always is collaborative. It really is. Um, and 
Hey, it's nice. It, it, it's a, it really helps you um, check your ego at the door, I think. And, and, you know, then you're, you're generating ideas with a group of creative people. Um, and, and your job as a director then just becomes about like synthesizing the best of them and helping um, connect the dots and steer the ship through all these wonderful things people are offering you. I mean, Buster is so, so beautiful also visually and like it has this really cool tonal sonically kind of unnerving compared to the images yeah. soundtrack as well and um, uh, the images are are so artistic and they have like a lot of headroom there's a lot of space around how did mm. you uh, build the visual language of, of that film yeah that's a good question um that movie was I'm trying I'm trying to remember how much prep we had it's a bit of a blur. It's, I feel like my memory's not that good. Mm. Um, but we were all living in the hotel where we shot. And for some reason, it feels like we were living in that hotel forever. I can't remember how much prep we have. But like, we had a toaster oven, and we were just, like, cooking meals in our toaster oven <laughs> at this hotel that was, like, part – it was, like, also an SRO. It was, like – we. I think our production got robbed a couple times on that. It was, like, not the safest place in the world. Anyway, sorry. This is not answering your question. But I guess it, location really speaks to me. So I think in some ways, like being in that place for a very long time. Um, and um, in the case of the Midnight Swim, that house is like one of the most special places to me on earth because that was my my family on my mom's side all shared that home. And so I grew oh, up wow. there in the summer. That was oh, like wow. a summer lake home. Um, and, it, it, and because this is actually touches on the nature of the subject matter of the midnight swim my mom lost her mom um just before she had her first child and i think my mom never changed almost anything about that cottage because it well that's not true she also decorated too but like it, it's very much the, the there's no production designer on the midnight swim because the production designer was basically my mom and my grandma um, and it, and there's something where like you feel her spirit there and it feels like this living, loving, um, place that mm -hmm. she inhabits in some way. That's so exciting. Yeah. So that, that energy is really like infused where you are into the films that totally. you make. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think that that's really probably in some ways, number one. And then also, you know, I happen to be married to my most important um collaborator which is great so Shaheen and I also have lots of time to be in conversation with each other and with Buster I remember we weren't the only movie that I think was our reference was Last Days by Gus Van Sant I was like so obsessed with that movie I could watch that movie like every That's day That's a great that it really is a great movie I just yeah. love like the wander around in bathrobe vibe and honestly yeah. clearly because then I went and made Buster but um I think that was our main touch because uh, Shaheen also did the part of the soundtrack correct he did yeah he did he goes by Mr. Squinter when he's making music how how is that um collaboration of being being married yeah. and also creative partners and well on buster it was just magic because um i also edited and did most of the initial sound design work myself i'm um and and like he would basically pass me buckets of music that then i could play around with and then be like kick one back and say you know so it was just so i got to work with that was so great i could work with my composer the entire time yeah i was editing um really organically 
Um, but like with Buster, I had like so many sound layers in that. Wait, I'm trying to remember where we were on Premiere or Final Cut. I think it was Premiere. Um, but I basically broke Premiere at some point because there was like a hundred layers of audio. I was like, not how you, you know, really made right. for that much audio editing. And by the end of editing Buster, I could only save once a day because it took like two or three hours to save the file. And (laughs) and it was just like, it became like sculpting granite. It was like so slow and hard to make those final edits. And so really took it to its edge. I mean, that movie is also filled with so much. I mean, there's so much nature and locations and different characters and uh, frogs and a young child. It's really like go big or go home. We, Jonica and I often turned to each other and we said, like, had we known what we were getting into, because Buster was so low budget, too. It was more than The Midnight Swim, but it was still, it was a $500,000 movie with, like, an 18-day principal photography, really. And I think we were, like, we were willfully ignorant, which I think you need to be a little bit Mm. making something that ambitious. I don't think, like somehow in our minds we were like it's a simple movie about like a guy wandering around the mountains but then when you really like actually there was actually a lot of locations and a lot of characters yeah like you said night shoots and water and animals and children and like all the things you're not supposed to do for low budget filmmaking we just did all of them but i mean how do you keep the confidence and um energy to kind of keep tackling those kind of challenges that come up during filming trying to think of a sincere answer to that question it's a good question um I think the best answer I can say is like I've always felt acutely that I'm gonna die soon anyway so whatever I don't know what no one knows what they're doing if 2020 has shown us anything nobody knows what they're doing and and the world doesn't know either just go for it may as well it's all we're gonna like none of this stuff is it's all everything is temporary Mm -hmm. you know like we like to imagine that films last forever but no everything Mm -hmm. will one day be buried and forgotten and someday when you know the alien race finally shows up at this planet and like digs through the rubble what they'll find is like some plastic like you know soda bottles and they'll be like this was the art rubber duckies the art of humans what does it mean yeah (laughs) yeah um okay so you went from film to tv how did that happen how did you transition from film to tv and what was kind of the first because you did room 104 for hbo Uh uh, the show wrecked and legion on fx yeah Yeah, how was that going from being a director from your own film as well and then kind of being a guest on a showrunner show for example and how do you manage that sure well room 104 was the ideal bridge i mean that was truly like such a stroke of luck in my life because I had never been anything but bleeding money and in debt with films before. It, I was still not at a point even after Buster where it was my career, you could say, because I wasn't, I was just losing money um, making films. And what happened was um, Ross Partridge and Jennifer LaFleur, who were actors in The Midnight Swim, were good friends with Mark and Jay Duplass. And Ross was also a producer on Room 104. So when they were looking for directors, they got me a meeting. And um, I just went, you know, I wanted to say balls out, but I guess ovaries out. Like, I just, like, went for it. Because I was like, mm-hmm. I need this. And I also, <laughs> I had 
I read the script. Um, Ralphie was the script they gave me that Mark Duplass wrote. And I just loved it. I thought it was so brilliant. And Mark Duplass has this like, just such a twisted, dark, creative sense of humor that I love. Um, so I just really pitched my heart out and Mark and I connected right away mm-hmm. um, and got that gig. And then I think we connected so well that he also then gave me the knock and do, which is another episode of Room 104, which is also so delightfully weird. Um, it, great script by Carson Mel, who's just such a brilliant writer. And so Room 104 was this wonderful, like sort of segue into TV because it's not like other TV. Mark mm-hmm. was very much like of the filmmaker type of format where he every episode was self-contained and he basically said here's the script you have I think it was three days and um you know I'll I'll be there as your bouncing board and your guide but basically do what you want and he was very trusting and hands-off um and really kind of let the filmmakers have their way with it because he wanted you know filmmakers perspective so that each episode was really different so that's rare that's not usually how tv works but that was my first time like getting a paycheck and um working with a union crew and having like right, fancy right. toys, you know, at my disposal. <laughs> yeah. Like what you like a real dolly? Like, you know, just like, st- like, how do you handle, is there a pressure that comes with that, that you suddenly have this surplus a little bit compared to what you were used to? And how do you manage kind of the technical knowledge that comes with that as well? Oh, you just go for it. And I think you just like, don't, and I think you, um, if you don't know something, I think it's okay. And you just ask and you know what you know, and you don't know what you don't know. And, um, you just go for it. I mean, I do think that like one of my strengths is I am lucky that I've had, I've always had a bit of fearlessness in me. Maybe that's, and I may actually really give credit to my parents on that one too, because I was raised in Colorado skiing all the time. And, you know, like just had, was raised with the notion of like, you just, um, you, you, you don't take stupid risks, but you, you go for it and you, you know, seize the opportunity. So, um, that part has come naturally to me. And then room 104 off the success of, I, I, that ended up being very successful for me because they gave, you know, I didn't know what order the episodes were going to air in, but Mark and Jay and HBO liked my episodes so much that they aired mine first and then mm. my the not gonna do aired third and that was like a very big deal and it it brought me a little traction and um at that point I got agents for the first time because um Buster had just premiered at uh TIFF mm-hmm. and I had booked my first TV gigs and now of course you know now the agents are interested once I like right. have a <laughs> No one's interested before. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you you did Hannah on um, Amazon Prime, which is also so cool. And um, you also executive produced that. So how does a project like that enter your life? And um, how do you walk into a meeting with Amazon or someone like David Farr and, and fight for that project? Well, my agents, so I had done, at that point, I had done um, wrecked was a stepping stone where, so I had done Ramona four, which is a tiny low budget little experimental thing. And then it got agents and my agents were like, Hey, let's get you like the next rung up, um, in terms of your sort of, um, you know, ability to show you can handle budgets. And so they got me wrecked, which was um, a great experience. Um, and then, and then Legion was another big leap up in terms of just like handling, um, like a prestige show with a bigger budget. And then they called me about this Hannah meeting 
and they were kind of like, look, it's probably, it's a long shot. They're going to want a pilot director with pilot experiences, you know, yeah. And, um, you know, take the meeting, don't get your hopes up kind of thing. But then I was just like, no, this is mine. And I read the script and I was like, this is mine and, Mm -hmm. and got very competitive about it and just like put together this intense pitch, went into the, the meeting guns blazing. Um, I remember there were a bunch of people in this meeting. Um, and I thought I, I, I left being like, I nailed that. I feel like I really nailed it. I remember there was one person who I was like, not so sure I convinced, but everyone else was like, really think I had them, um, on my side. Um, and then, um, I think it was like later that day or the next day they had called my agents and were offering me episodes, but not the pilot. Cause they were like, Oh, we need to need a pilot director, blah, blah. So I wrote an email to my agent and I said, I'm going to write you an email that looks like it's just to you, but then I want you to forward it to them. I said, okay. Then I write her this email and I was like, tell them, fuck that. And they're making a huge mistake. And here's why. And then just like, just listed off why I was the right person for this and just like sounded off. And she's like, okay, and forward it to them. So now here I'm super proud of myself. I'm like, what a power move. Way to go, Sarah. (laughs) And then just radio silence. (laughs) Radio silence for a month, you know, nothing happened. So I was like, oh, guess that didn't work. But, um, but truly it was a no for me. I, at that point I'd done some episodes and I was yeah. like, it was a no for me because I, I wanted, I just knew that I, it was great. I was it, and now at the point in my career where I was like able to get episodes of TV and like pay off our debt for the first time, go to the dentist. Mm-hmm. It was like amazing in a lot of ways, but I was also kind of starting to feel depressed. Like I'm losing touch with the, why I wanted to do this in the first place. And I thought, you know, maybe doing a pilot would be so much more satisfying, but like, I didn't want to continue to just be doing episodes. And I thought there's a, there's a way in which you can get really comfortable doing that. And it's amazing. There's nothing wrong with it, but I just like the writer in me too, was just like craving more, um, um, involvement in story. And, um, so it was a, a true no for me. And then, um, I ended up in that month where we didn't hear from them. I ended up booking a different pilot. Um, and, um, and I think then my agents did good agenting and they probably whispered, they're like, somebody else is willing to take a risk on her. Right, right, right. You know, yeah. I think there's a lot of that. People like, then they're like, oh, well then we need to maybe meet with her again, you know? Like I'm getting to call yeah. somewhere else. <laughs> exactly. In demand. Um, and so then at that point they called me back in and I remember I was such a douche because, um, I remember poor Patrick Chu. He, um, he was the executive at Amazon at the time. He called me back in for a meeting and I was so like over it at that point. I was like, why am I, I was kind of like, why am I here? Like you guys didn't want me. Um, and um, so I was like ill prepared for that meeting in some ways, but he still like believed in me enough to be like, let's get you on the phone with David Farr. I hadn't met him at this point. Um, he's like, the only time you can do is 7am tomorrow. Can you do it? I said, yes. Um, so then I think it was that phone call with David Farr that really sort of made me a serious contender I channeled, I, I don't know how to describe it other than I just like tapped into what I loved most about that character and like shamanically fucking channeled wolf energy on the phone to connect my heart to David's. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that was a really good phone call. And then that got me one more meeting. Then I had to do it again with Amazon because I had, right. like I said, I sort of 
um, had been a douche in the meeting previously with Amazon. So I think they're like, come back in now <laughs> one more time. And I think in at that point, um, I, I had the sense that like, you know, I bet you they're insecure about my ability to do action because I hadn't truthfully done that much of it. Um, so, and, uh, and you know, like lady, young lady director, there's going to be, so, not that anyone consciously has those worries, but I, I had a feeling that that was probably part of the worry. So I decided what I was going to do for that meeting is just really focus on the action sequences. Mm. And I, I dressed um, like a ninja for that meeting. Um, you know, not overtly so, but in my, my own mind. Just channeling the energy. It's like the manifestation, right? I think it's 100% part of yeah. that. Yeah, I yeah. needed to like, in my own mind, I felt like a ninja walking into that meeting. And then I was like fully acting out the action scenes for them to the point where at one point I was like so enthusiastic. I think I reared back and like smacked a painting on the wall, which was like this oil painting of the show Transparent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Like really just like enthusiastically. But yeah, I think, I th and, then I, and then I got it after that. Because it was shot in so many different places, but mm -hmm. do you see like a big difference between European filmmaking and US filmmaking? And how was that on that set? Yeah, I mean, I, I really love European filmmaking. I actually sometimes dream about just like moving to Europe and getting an EU passport. I mean, there's such respect for the filmmaker. Um, mm in the European model. And it, you know, there can there can be in American models too, but it's just, a, I don't know, it's just a little different. Um, I, I don't know, I, I don't know what else to say, except I just really adored it. And it was such an adventure. And it was so much like, the, in some ways, the Colorado girl in me really came out for Hannah mm. because it really felt, making that show really felt like an extreme sport, you know, mixed with art. And the adrenaline rush of it was just, I, I'm definitely a bit of an adrenaline junkie. I think that's partly why I like directing. You know, we were like in Slovakia and everyone's getting frostbite in the middle of the night. And like, you know, there's nowhere to pee, by the way. Yeah. Um, it's mostly male crew. And I'm the only one who like can't like, and I can't like, I'd like sneak away to try and pee in the woods. But then there's like the special effects guy with the fog machine. Right. There. Was, like, no, I just like basically like did Hilarious. not pee for a week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the things you don't think about when you're shooting in the woods. Yeah, it was really, you know, the it was so ambitious. And, you know, I'm not sure what their schedule was like for the movie, Hannah, but that movie, um, you know, Joe Wright's brilliant, beautiful film, mm -hmm. much bigger budget. And, and we were working on a TV schedule and a TV budget, but I really wanted to still just do justice to the scope of the story. Yeah, and gr still ground it in character. And it was, it was just, it was really a lot. And, um, but I actually, I brought on date for, for that. I brought on Dana Gonzalez, who I had worked with on Legion, mm. the DP on Legion. And he was such a perfect partner for that. Um, I just knew, first of all, I knew that um, it was one thing to get myself approved as a pilot director for that experience. But I was like, oh, they're, you know, they're not going to approve um, Shaheen as my cinematographer for that if he has no TV experience. So, and Shaheen totally understood that too. But actually I brought Shaheen on to do second unit for me on Hannah. Ah, cool. so yeah. Nice. So he yeah. he also had a hand in that too, and he also did um he did one day of first unit the the first I think three or four scenes of episode two Shaheen shot um our little London unit yeah 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 yeah, yeah remember <laughs> um let's talk a little bit before we have to wrap up about your most recent project which was is now in post-production, congratulations, super cool, but you Thank had you. to halt production because of COVID, I think like a week before wrapping really close to the end and then you got to come back and finish it so what was that like what is it like shooting in these times and then going into post 
well, we're so lucky that we got to go back and finish it. So we were seven days from wrapping. We were paused in, I want to say it was mid-March. And um, I think five of those seven days we had left to shoot were all like really big crowd scenes that were supposed to be, you know, it was all the of stuff. Course. Was, it was all like the impossible stuff. And um, it was like, not only were there crowd scenes, but everyone was like, dancing and sink and half naked and sweating all over each other it was supposed to be these like the original ending was like this you know um 200 people um dancing in a kind of trance to like open up a psychological wormhole and it was like this ritualistic thrive writhing um so anyway um had to rewrite the script a couple times because like that just that's not gonna happen um so I really I rewrote that thing like I don't even know there's I have to look in my folder there must be like 40 drafts of trying to it's really hard when you have anyone who's made a movie knows it's a very delicate lattice structure and you're not you're shooting out of order you know you're usually mm-hmm. shooting based on location availability or actor availability and so it's a really difficult thing to then um rewrite something where 23 of the 30 days has already been shot and you just have these little missing pieces and so it was a really it was a cool rubik's cube to try and solve and i think that we in the end i mean i also have to be willfully self-deluded um but i'm i the story i've told myself that i believe to be true is that the movie became better for it you know yes um, 100 percent Yeah, and if we're done, we'll never know. We'll never see the other room. So just, I think, you know, I discover new layers and levels to the story by having to rewrite it so many times and, and solve this difficult puzzle. And so we went back to um, finish shooting in August. And because of COVID, we asked this, they were very supportive of the studio. We asked them for nine days instead of seven because we knew we were going to have to slow down and some things were just going to take a lot longer. Um, so we were only supposed to be shooting for nine days, but we did have um, a bunch of different COVID-related delays. And so we were, ended up being there for like 42 days. Oh, wow. Much bigger thing um, because of different, yeah, COVID-related issues. And um, and I, I will say once we were on, finally on set and rolling, it was great. And we, we had, I think, a very safe environment and I felt really um, proud of the work environment we were able to create. It's definitely not easy shooting in COVID, but you do get used to it. I think it's just for anybody being under PPE mm-hmm. for that many hours a day is really hard. Um, I mean, but who are we to complain? I mean, there's like, you know, the first right. responders and, and medical staff doing that every single day without fail. And I think it, I really benefited from the fact that the actors and I had already had such a close relationship Mm-hmm. given that we were so far along when we got paused. So at least we could pick back up where we started. I think it would be harder in some ways to start a brand new project mm-hmm. in those circumstances. Um, I may knock on wood be doing that come the spring. And it dep- you know, I don't know if vaccines will be available by then, but we're kind of moving forward thinking they won't be. So, right. um, so it'll be interesting to see what it's like to start a brand new project in these circumstances. Definitely. But it, it's, you know, it's a hard thing to like, um, especially if you're doing a really emotional scene um, and a really heavy scene to like give an actor a note from behind like a face shield, you know? Right. So like right, finding, right. finding ways to um, maintain that, that language and trust with each other 
I do want to ask about uh, Everything is Everything and your production yeah. company and just tell us a little bit about that and like the work that you have uh, with Amazon Studios. Jonico Donnelly is my, like I said, my longtime creative collaborator. We actually met in college. I had just been mugged. And um, in the wake of that mugging, for some reason, I was like drunk and had been mugged. And I remember oh, no. we were like sitting on the, in the floor of our hallway in our dorm and like pledged to make films together. And we're like, yes, let's do that. And we really never looked back. I mean, I've, yeah, I, I realize now I'm, I'm revealing my age, but I've basically been working with her like longer than, more than half my life, you know? Mm-hmm. We, so um, Birds of Paradise, this this movie I'm in post on now is an everything, everything, everything is everything production, as was Buster. We have a doc um, coming out on the Equal Rights Amendment oh, um, wow. that we're EPs on. Uh-huh. And then we have a bunch of TV in development, um, not just with um, Amazon, but also some other places too. We um, just sold a a pitch to stars. We have a project at Peacock and then a bunch of stuff at Amazon as well. So, um, how is that process of, of, of running a, a production company? How is that informed by your directing side, but does it also inform your business side of, uh, from your graphic design? Day? Yeah. Um, it's, it's been great. I mean, I think that, um, it's allowed us to think about projects to that, um, aren't necessarily just vehicles for me to write and direct, but things that we can shepherd for other people mm-hmm. um, and be supportive for other people and things we really believe in. Sometimes you come across a movie or show idea, you're like, oh, I really want to watch that. You know, I, w- I would be the fan of that. Is that really for me? Is it actually, am I the person to direct it? Right. And those can be, and those can be kind of confusing. Sometimes it's confusing. You have to like hone your, um, your skill at knowing the difference. And so, and I'm still working on that, but I think I'm, we're getting better with time at knowing like what's a project we want to shepherd and support versus the one that um, is going to be your baby. Okay. So we end every episode with a little rapid fire. I'm going to ask you okay. like five little questions for like our little I'm recommendation so column. No, no, no. It's so easy. Okay. Um, okay. A book you recommend. Oh, oh God. Wait, I just, I just finished a book I love and it's on my nightstand and now I can't remember the name of it. I'm embarrassed. I think it's called Luster. I'm going to go. Yeah, what can we, can. can I give you, I'm going to give you minutes back. Can I go in there? And yeah. Yeah. For it? Okay. <laughs> I'm walking you into my house once again. Yeah. It is called Luster. I was right. Raven Leilani. And it's such a delicious read. And I also just read barn eight, um, which is an amazing novel. A piece of music you recommend? This is, it's not original, but the one that just came up that I listen to all the time is uh, Lead Belly. Yes. <laughs> I'm always listening to Lead Belly, but that's, um, that's not, um, oh, how about this? Um, it's also probably not the most um, amazing discovery, but I'm really into Benjamin Clementine. Um, a visual artist. Oh, 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 obviously. Um, Frohawk Two Feathers. This is a great one. Is my, yeah, my friend Umar, he's actually, um, um, I fell in love with his art first and then we became friends, but he, I think he's a real genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, a movie you think the world needs to see right now? I'm trying to think of specifically for right now. Moving. I went, I don't know why, but Contact flashed back into my head. I, Contact is a really important film for me. And I don't know why I think the world needs to see it right now, but I guess something about it made it bubble up when you asked that question. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's like a sense of like, what I love about that movie is like a sense of sacredness for 
what we have here um, in the, the chance to be alive and have relationships and love and a sense of um, humility in mm. our, in our scale of the things that are, what I love about contact is like, there's this sense of the grand beyond, but it's also like the beautiful triumph of the human spirit and that will to pursue it, mm-hmm. that which is beyond us. Um, and maybe I feel like, um, I think our world needs like a really radical reevaluation of values. Mm. And I think we need to think, get in back in touch with nature and each other and like extreme gratitude for this miracle yeah. <laughs> that we're here, um, and not take it for granted. And maybe that's why contact bubbled up. I think that's beautiful. And I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much. I'm very, very grateful. It was so nice to talk to you about everything. You're just such an incredible person. So I'm really, really grateful. Nice to talk to you too. This is a great conversation. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And thank you to Sarah for joining me. Most of her work can be found, Midnight Swim and Hannah on Amazon Prime, Buster's Malheart on Netflix, Room 104 on HBO, and you can also follow Sarah on Instagram, all linked in the show notes. One more episode left of this season, make sure to hit that subscribe button and follow the podcast Instagram for sneak peeks at In Her Lens Podcast. Till the final episode, stay safe and healthy. Cheers, bye. Bye.